Welcome, my name is Bill Munhausen and I'm your host for The Key, Christian Ideas and Activism, based in Lake of the Ozarks in central Missouri. We talk about diverse topics from a Christian perspective. Our team of local residents includes David Batty, Matt Burns, Stacy Shaw, Ike Skelton, and Deanna Walton. God has equipped all of us to speak life into our community, and this program will be a forum for people to share as God builds his kingdom among us. No subject is too big or too small, because everyone's story is unique. Can Christians be more purposeful? Can we be more um, offensive? That sounds wrong. We don't want I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know some of us can be I know offensive. I can. <laughs> offensive. Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, the thought is we, we, we kind of react to all of these things that are thrown our way. And uh, as I was studying, you know, what Curtis Bowers was talking about with the agenda, it seems like the left or people who are um, not conservatives are good at making lists. Mm-hmm. And they're good at making lists and then implementing lists. And they're patient. They, yeah, and they're patient. They, they see the long term. Yes. And there are a number of things that... that Kind of, I want to bring up about this, but can we do the same thing? Should we be making lists? Yes. And um, implementing a list, a strategy to purposefully take back the culture. Absolutely. I, I think that should be taking place. Uh, there's a pretty significant difference uh, in the two sides in regard to that. Uh, when, when the Christian moves ahead uh, uh, offensively, uh, with uh, with an avenue for sharing the truth, for making a difference in a community, uh, they're pretty quickly attacked. Mm. Yeah. And so they're kind of forced to be uh, a little bit on the defensive, where the opposite isn't so true. I mean, yes, there are Christians, there's conservatives that, that, that certainly attack uh, the agenda of the left, but uh, it's not... Uh, nearly as often inconsistent as it is the other way. So I don't think, uh, uh, you know, we're ever going to get away from from having to be defensive and having a good defense, the truth. Uh, but uh, uh, that does not mean that uh, you don't uh, have meetings, you don't talk, you don't brainstorm, you don't put together uh, good plans uh, to put out good ideas. And well, let me give you an example. The left decided a long time ago, to take over education. Mm-hmm. So they started strategically putting people, mm-hmm. and I don't exactly know how that happened, whether people individually, whether, um, was it Thomas Dewey? Yeah. Dewey. Thomas Dewey. Mm-hmm. He the became, Dewey Decimal System, the originator. Yeah, and yeah. he became the, the um, I don't know, how was he related to the public school system? He was one of the people who established it. Well, understand this, the public school system was not, I mean, the Department of Education, let's say. There was no Department of Education. Until 1974, correct. But what what that did was just usher in with expediency the policies or the ideals that were brought in by the Thomas Deweys of the world. So Dewey, did he take it upon himself or was there some kind of a an overarching plan that said, hey, Dewey, you take education. I don't know. Well, it's the same thing, though, with Darwin. I mean, look at Charles Darwin. I mean, you of all people, I mean, with you know the whole idea of Darwinism 
and the evolution lie. Yeah, no, it's you, been disproven. Yeah, okay. And I mean, and here's the point, but we still teach that as fact in our public schools and to even bring in the idea of creationism with equal exuberance is completely mocked and ridiculed now as ridiculous. Right. But whenever you understand the whole idea of Darwinism is so incredibly offensive that monkeys to men, seriously? Mm-hmm. And so when you reduce it to what it really is, it's so incredibly dumb yeah, it's, it's, dumb d- it's ignorant the details but it's con- but it's being accepted it but it's being accepted <laughs> and that's the same thing that Dar- that you know thomas dewey brought in it's just yeah. confusion but you see i i don't see um i don't see our side strategically thinking about this i disagree and i'm going to tell you why okay I mean, just and I'm a huge educa- education advocate, and most people know me as such because I got thrown into that fire, whether willfully or unwillfully. But I think if you look at the heavy, heavy population of children that are being homeschooled now in our country, it's pretty staggering. Those numbers are compelling. So to say that people aren't creating an answer to that, they are creating an yeah, answer, and I've met those moms. But the, the key term is strategic. I think, I think it people, is strategic. I think um, we homeschooled. Mm-hmm. But it was an individual thought. It wasn't because the church suggested it. It wasn't because somebody was telling us it was a good idea. It was our original thought. There's a lot of, I guess because Christians are spirit-led, the spirit That's leads true. us to to do a lot of things, but the organization doesn't. It's kind of like uh, off the record we were talking about why um, the church that I attend doesn't support me in the way I'd like to. They, I'd like them to. And it's not because they don't mean to. It's because it's not part of a plan. They don't have a strategy for how to support the ministries they support. They, they kind of do it. But there's no strategic thinking behind it. However, Deanna mentioned they're having meetings, and now they're thinking about a strategic way of doing it. So that's a good sign. But it seems like the church because of all of its divisions and diversity, isn't very good at organizing to come up with a plan and for all the churches to join in on the plan. And that's where the left has done really well. I agree. Because they were kind of an international movement, so they kind of were inspired to all be on the same page. I think, I mean, and that's what's so terribly unfortunate. Like Franklin Graham, um, two weeks ago, wrote, a letter to the churches about this new anti-discrimination policy mm-hmm. and really what it is, it's a veiled attempt to really throttle Christians based on their beliefs and, and what they are driven by, like a biblical perspective. And so his warning was to the church. Is that strategic? I don't know. I mean, thank God for someone like Franklin Graham that has an audience to educate. Because, again, we're so guilty as churches of listening to talking points and sound bites. It would be strategic if Franklin Graham did what he did and the pastors of the country noticed. Well, received it. Received Received the warning. Noticed it, received it, and communicated it. True. And that's where the power, and that's where we need to become more strategic. But it's... Being willing to receive that message and output the dangers that are embedded in those laws because we really are under assault. And those kind of laws that are veiled as equality, mm-hmm. it's really not about equality at all. And those are the conversations inside the churches we need to be having to hold our elected officials accountable because, again, when they lay a piece of legislation on the desk of these guys – it may have three or four or five or six good points, but it's 500 pages of 
you know, things that really will, once extrapolated, will gut so many of the things that we hold dear. And I don't think we can even weigh how serious. But pastors, here's my thing. Pastors are going to have to become more accountable. They're going to have to engage at a different level. And they're going to have to see the big picture in order to be better shepherds. And if that offends people, it's just going to have to offend them because they're too, they have blinders and it's safe that way. But we're moving into a day and age where they're going, in order to be responsible shepherds of their flocks, Mm -hmm. they're going to have to listen with a different set of ears because their flocks are in danger. So in terms of strategic thinking, it seems to me the very first thing that needs to happen is we need to have a much better way of communicating to the next generation. All of our churches have Sunday schools, or most of them do, but I'm kind of clueless about what our Sunday school teaches. How, sh- how can I say this graciously? There are people who create curriculum for Sunday schools for churches, and those people who create the curriculums somewhere aren't necessarily any better at creating curriculums than the public school yeah. curriculum creators are. And they're trying to appeal to every church, so they're trying, they necess- necessarily have to water it down somewhat, keep it very mainstream. It's about the money. It's not about the message. I mean, let's be honest. I truly believe that. It's about selling as much of a product that has pretty coloring pages and puppet skits or whatever. But are they really giving the children, teaching them how to put on the armor of God every day? Do they even know what that means? Or teaching them scripture memory and things that used to be normal that just don't happen anymore. That's right. We're shadowing the public schools too much in our churches. Exactly. And I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Again, it starts with our churches. If so, we're going to revolutionize the way we think, it starts there. It seems it seems to me that the very basic thing that would have to happen, agenda-wise, is that it all begins in the family, mm-hmm. and it all begins in the family identifying what is a true Christian worldview and implementing it in their family and aligning with churches that build up the families. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's missing is we put our kids in Sunday school, we let our adults listen to the, the, the uh, message, whatever it might be. But there's no sense of equipping families, teaching uh, young dads and moms how to raise the next generation, what they have to do to communicate the Christian message to their own kids. And so everything is left to be kind of haphazard. And some people are really wonderful at it, and some people are not at all. I think that's what we had been sharing the agenda videos at at our church and that's what I felt very strongly to end with last Wednesday night was pointing out that our focus does need to be on equipping the family when we see a family unit or we have a new family come to our church and we see any level of brokenness or families that have been there forever and they're dysfunctional or whatever our number one focus truly should be restoring that family restoring the father, you know, to where he needs to be. And we can look across America at many of the poverty, uh, impoverished areas, and we see fathers missing, yeah. you know. And so I, I totally agree with you that, that our main focus should be the family unit. Now, David and I, a few years ago, we met a man who whose heart was to do exactly that. And what we found is he was approaching pastors and trying to convince the pastors that we really needed to do this job of equipping the family. And I don't think he met much success in that. No, no, he didn't, uh, Bill. And uh, 
I'd like to wrap back around. Actually, I saw him the other day. I didn't have a chance to break in the conversation and, and visit with him. Uh, he was he was very bold in his presentation of mm-hmm. what he had, and I think that caused a little bit of the of the hesitation on 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 most of the pastors. It kind of scared him a little bit, I think. But yeah. uh, but in, incredible, incredible. The church actually needs to be, believe it or not, the church actually needs to be pulling back from raising the families. And they should be teaching mom and dad. First of all, they should be asking the mom and dads. There's lots of information out there that mom and dads have that they can impart to the church, that they can be imparted to the mom and dad that don't have that information. They, they don't have those experiences. They don't, they don't know. I, I just think it's huge. I, I still don't know why uh, the Lord's plan was for that to not take root. Uh, I have an opinion on that. I think that when you have boldness, and the, if that gentleman was inspired, I mean, think about the the disciples, you know, that went with Christ. How, were they received? Were they mellow enough? They were passionate because they had walked with them. And so when you're inspired in a way that that gentleman quite possibly was, the boldness was the conviction he felt because he felt he had been, he had heard from God. And so I do believe that judgment has to come. And so whether he was brought there to bring a message or to provoke thought, sometimes there has to be a messenger for judgment to follow. And that's an unfortunate truth that most churches don't want to hear, but it's accurate. And so I think that that's where, you know, not every person that comes with boldness is going to be correct, but that's where prayer, you know, truly submitting to prayer and and trying to, to seek out God's face and understand if people come you know, do we listen or do we turn them off because they're too bold, they're too passionate, they're too loud, they're too whatever. I think that we have to, there has to be an openness to receive direction if we feel it's inspired. And I think that's where we've gotten away from that. If it doesn't fit the mold, then don't let them in. And I think, that's too, sad. on a counterpart to that, too, like I, I agree with some of that assessment, but in the culture and climate that we have, and, and as a parent of young children, I am very skeptical of anyone I don't know. You know, I'm not going to let any random person speak over my children or to my children or without a relationship. And, and, and I have no idea about this situation. I have no idea. Who, if you knew him, then, then it would be one degree closer to, to trusting. But at the same time, you know, I personally, if someone has a boldness to come in and do that and they're a fly-by-night, who knows where they came from, I wouldn't let them speak into my family without first vetting who they were or having a sense or a drawing from the Holy Spirit, you know. And okay. and I, I don't think that that's wrong. I think that there's wisdom in that because, I mean, we've talked about things we could do in the community and going from door to door and helping people, you know. But two weeks ago, the sheriff put out information saying, hey, if you have random strangers coming to your house, don't let them in and don't let them help you because... <laughs> there's people who are scamming you and that's a legitimate concern. Mm. And so what do we do with that whenever, you know, I mean, a pastor has a huge responsibility of, of who speaks into the lives of the people he's responsible for. And yeah, I mean, not, not to defend everyone, but like just knowing personally, I am scared. I don't trust anybody. Like I trust you guys around this table mostly. But no, <laughs> I'm a little concerned about Matt over there, but no. Um, That's a great point. Yeah, That's a great point. What you got me last time was talking about the homeless camps that are set up 
around here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And just that really has struck me and worked on me to know that, you know, we're so busy with I, me, I'm going to speak toward to myself, so busy that you don't, they're there, there's need there, for whatever reason there's need there. I don't know how to find them. I don't know how to help them if I could find them. Right. We had a gentleman come by um, our church, and he just walked by. He showed up, and he was using the water hose, you know, just to get a drink. And he had been traveling through. He moved back to this area. He used to live here a long time ago. Moved back. Has been living in the woods. And I don't know where. He didn't say specifically where. He just says, I live in the woods. He's basically starving you know, and so, you know, we asked him to come in, we were giving him water, and he didn't want to eat because he felt that would make him sick, you know, it was to that point, and he's like, I just, I know I need to get a job, I want to do this, I want to connect with some people, but I just, I'm exhausted, you know, he's like, where can I stay, and so we gave him, like, the place to stay for several days, and, you know, it was providing that, but, but at the end of the day, I, I asked my husband, I was like, what did we do? Did we solve the problem? No. And I just felt she showed him Jesus. No, we do. You know, you know, for I mean, for whatever seed that was planted. I mean, and if he would have taken, what well, hopefully that'll take hold. But you showed him Jesus for that moment that he needed you. You give them rest and you give them yes. water and what they need. But but then it just made me realize, like, with your, there's there's so much more out there. Yeah. There's so much brokenness and and need. And that's where the church engages, and not socialism. Mm-hmm. Truly investing in those that want to be invested in. And trying to help them you know, find their way. But again, they have to want to be invested in. But for the church to be that safety net, I think, is a beautiful answer. Mm-hmm. You know, to looking towards the government, the churches need to be the charity with a heart towards charity. That's an answer. That's a solution. Right. Mm-hmm. That's sad. So it was rough. It, it, yeah. Yeah. So we are kind of agreeing that the family is, is kind of the root thing that needs to be built up if we have an agenda, if we want to make a list. Mm-hmm. What else? We're too busy as families. I'm going to say this. I'm married to a football coach, right? Mm-hmm. And At so, Camdenton. Yeah. <laughs> and so for us, sports have... So um, does he only work like three months a year? Is that how no, it is? I wish. I wish. <laughs> but I also think that we've allowed um, athletics, sports... Um, all these extracurricular activities for our children to become almost like a graven image. Like a, I don't know if that's the right word, sure. but it's such a distraction. And so what we've really tried to do as a family is to really rein that in. We didn't let my very talented athletic fresh going to be freshman. He played no summer basketball. I played no summer sports, very, very limited. Mm-hmm. We've really tried to sew back into our family and spending quality time because what you realize is they're gone in a minute. You know, I have two kids in college now. And so what I would also encourage families, young families to do, don't be so distracted by all of the activities you feel like your kids have to be in to be, you know, to have any success in life. They're distractions that take away from that really important time that you have as a unit. And your kids need to be a family more than you need to go play basketball in Springfield or football in some kind of a league in July. It's just, it's overdone, and I'm going to be the one to say it. And I think my husband believes that also. So we've really tried, especially with our last, maybe we made more mistakes with our first, but to rein that in and not let that take such a priority in our lives because it's a distraction that they need to see family first. And those are distractions that 
are pronounced and not right, and it's too much of it. There's just too much of it. And so we've got to get back to the basics of how to be a family and not completely be on the run all the time at practice and events and then another practice and then another practice. It's really taking away from the nurturing that we need to do as parents and the growth of our children. Some of it's healthy, too much of it's damaging. And I fear that so much of it is damn. what we see is damaging. So that's something that as a mom who's raised two and I've got one that's going starting high school, that I really think um, is important. Those are important conversations to have. Mm-hmm. Um, Directly from the mouth of my eight-year-old now is um, his excitement over family time. Um, I remember it was just one day last week. You know, we, we give them lots of things. I feel like lots of good things, adventures, activities, toys, games, all of these fun things. But the thing he was most excited about was the idea that daddy was coming home and mommy was there and he goes, Oh, this is awesome. It's going to be a family night, you know? And he goes, that was his favorite thing. And I said, Oh buddy. I said, but daddy's coming home, but mommy has to go to work, you know? And cause we balance our lives out where we definitely make sure I thought I was doing a really good thing by making sure that they don't have babysitters. They don't have daycare. They don't have outside childcare. My husband has them or I have them or my mom, you know, it's a very tight unit, but in that we get busy and so we kind of pass each other as we're coming and going but what his heart's cry is more than anything he would get rid of all of his stuff if he could have family time all of us just together just like simple and I think you're right like we have to simplify and scale back and realize that to raise children we don't have to provide them with the world you know with everything they could ever want or desire the basic needs is just having a family. Should we be grooming kids for particular occupations? You say you're. My, you're I'm shaking no. my head. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think that we need to be grooming them with skills of how to think, how to problem solve. Um, maybe I'm. Maybe I said that wrong. Should we encourage our kids to go into places of influence when they become adults? I think they're going to have their own natural giftings sure. that I recognize all three of my children are uniquely different and they have different strengths, but I think they can all be influencers by knowing that they have a voice. Now, does one of them have a particular interest in interest in politics? Surprisingly so. Mm-hmm. Not that I would encourage it because I would never want to go into politics, but he does. So to try to nurture that and expose him, but as far as nudging my children to any occupation, I think they're all gifted in different ways. And, and what I pray and what I tell them is that if you honor the Lord in all that you do, that you will be blessed in all of your, I mean, in your ways. I mean, let him direct that path because those are the, their giftings. So they're gifted in different ways, but to try to push them all into politics or not, not ever. Yeah. Th- not thrive and be terribly miserable. Let me say it a different way. If we see somebody, not our own kids, who um, perhaps could be an educator or a school administrator or, or a university professor, should we be more supportive of that? Because it, it seems like a lot of times in the church what we aspire for the, the really best of the best is to become a missionary or a pastor or something or should we encourage more? Um, should we encourage people to be movie makers and musicians and yes. get into the arts? And 
I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Not, not necessarily our kids. It's not like we want to dictate what our kids do, but if we see somebody who's got talent. Right. I don't, I don't think our kids can become a strategy. Right. That's right. You know, uh, in our in our big overall plan, and I, and I know that's not what you meant uh, at all, but just to make that clear, uh, I don't think they should be a, a strategy. Uh, I guess. Well, now that's an interesting thought, but I do think it crosses a line. Uh, uh, but uh, encouraging, uh, nurturing, uh, paying attention to our children as to what uh, they have a propensity for, and and and. And yes, passion for. I mean, that's what I looked out for in all of my kids. What, what did they have a passion for? Because I wanted to uh, try to uh, create a springboard if they wanted to walk out on the end of it and jump up and down and dive in. You know, I, I didn't want to push them into it, but I wanted to make sure that I did everything I could do to make sure there was no nothing obstructing them from moving forward in it. And, and sometimes it was it was sacrificial, you know, and even you know, even painful, <laughs> I won't go into it, but, but, uh, I just think that's, that's, uh, that's the design of things, you know, we were all knitted together in a beautiful way, and that beautiful way we were knitted, knitted together, I think, needs to, needs to have every encouragement and every support to become everything that, it was designed to be so, so how did the left do this? Are they just more um, ruthless than we are? Or t- yes. How the, did this? The, the rules don't. The, there's no rules. See, the, the, there's no rules. Actually, there's something called rules for lat- radicals. Yeah, got, that was got drafted. A copy of it right here. Sololinsky. Yeah, yeah. yeah Sololinsky. But when you realize or recognize that it just took a really small nucleus of people. You know, Hillary Clinton actually wrote her master's thesis paper um, inspired by Alinsky. So when you understand that Obama had a direct reach, the University of Chicago is where a lot of these things, including the new math, it was originated out of Chicago, the University of Chicago. And so, you know, you say, where did all of this come from? Well, and just trying to seek out, like with the whole education and what was happening in education, go to the University of Chicago, that's where Alinsky, the influence of Alinsky. So did it have a nucleus somewhere? I think so, yes. And that's all it needs to take hold is a nucleus of thought. And those that then, the law of exponentials, the law of exponentials is a very powerful concept and to get people to buy in and then to radically spread those ideas and beliefs. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alinsky's not been that long ago. It, it occurred to me some time ago that what the universities encourage is... Um, Radical new ideas. Yes. If, if you want to get a doctorate, you don't have to just produce something learned. It has to be a new, a new thought. And so you'll never earn a doctorate in political science by saying the Constitution is good. Well, to your point, what so, made me a radical? I was getting my degree my senior year, 400-level classes. You had to write a senior paper. Political science major. I had my one class to write. My and I wrote mine from a conservative perspective, knowing that my professor would not like it. Mm-hmm. The only D I ever received ever was in that class, and it, it would have barred me from graduating. But I had to go to the dean and petition because I was docked for my beliefs. Sure, that did change my whole life, though. 
because it caused me to find my voice in a new profound way because I literally, he tried to keep me from graduating college because I wrote my paper from a conservative perspective. Yeah, but but you understand my my thought is that the university requires you to have an original thought. Well, that's where I think that they tried to fit me in a box. Sure. And I said, I'm not fitting in your box. And so, but I think that's what's happening but, in all universities. But I'm wondering if that's why the left has been successful, not because they're smart, but because that opportunity existed because you have Absolutely. to be radical in order to get your doctorates and to establish a, a reputation and, and have a voice in the university system. Absolutely. So are we kind of unable to replicate that? Or can we go to the universities now and say the most radical thing you'd ever thought of is being a Christian? Are we far enough along that our, so. th- our thoughts would be unusual? I just want to say this. I'm a huge fan of Charlie Kirk. Do you yeah. know Charlie Kirk? Right. He goes to college campuses, the most liberal. Turning point. Yeah. He yes. sits in the middle of a campus with a sign. And Stephen Crowder, same thing. They engage the liberal mentality, what's happening on our college campuses. They record it and they put it out on social media to show the ignorance of it. Mm-hmm. And so where he's attacked the most is, well, how many degrees do you have? Sure. So instead of being able to debate real issues with intelligence, they try to marginalize him by, well, how many degrees do you have? Why should that matter? He has the facts and the truth on his side, but that's really where we're at. It's, it's now the educrats in society rule the day, and we've got to get away from that. So I do think we are. I think there's a movement that's moving in that direction of college kids. And just watching his movement with Candace Owens and others, I think there's a movement of pushback. I really do. It's gotten too radical. I agree. I don't. I don't. I think there are a lot of um, Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens are kind of like originals. Yeah. They're they're not a strategy. They're kind of like Rush Limbaugh in a way that they are self motivated individuals. Maybe this is the time, because of social media, for all of these powerful individuals to have an effect. Yeah. Maybe there's no need for a strategy. Maybe it's just um, going to happen organically, so to speak. Maybe that's a strategy. It's, uh, no, it's not a strategy. It's, <laughs> maybe it's the Holy Spirit strategy. It isn't ours. <laughs> I have heard, and I, I guess it's yet to be proven true, but say Gen Z or the next generation, there's a large group of conservatives rising up. You know, There are massive amounts of voices that will become relevant very soon. I would like to see that. I hope that 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 is true. I will say this. I have a 21-year-old daughter, Sophie. I don't know if you've ever met Sophie. But her, and I never thought I'd see her do this. She's moving to Washington, D.C. as soon as she graduates because she sees that movement emerging. She's a strong, beautiful, intelligent Christian woman, and she finds that there is opportunity for her to make a difference from, I find it, you know, the seat of evil, Washington, D.C., but there's a lot of kids just like her that are already there. And so she's going to build that, wants to go be a part of that army, that movement that's happening that is all rooted right there. And she understands it at a different level than I do, but she's not wanting to walk there. She's wanting to run there. So she has one year of college, but she's absolute. That's where it's all starting. That's where the origination is taking place. So as a 21-year-old, my 15-year-old is just as radical. I mean, he, he's a, my, my freshman, but he believes the same. And so I do believe there's an uprising taking place, but for her... She wants to be a part of the movement that you speak of, and I do think there is one. I really do. That's really Mm -hmm. exciting. 
I will say to your strategy and talking about that, like we haven't really mentioned this much, but with the election coming up in 2020, I mean, that's narrowing down. We're getting pretty close to a lot of, I guess, campaigning time. So what could our strategy be? Say, what should the church or what should conservatives, religious or non-religious, what should we be doing between now and election day for this election for the future president, like the, the 2020, because I remember watching the video, the agenda, you know, the one um, in the episode we just watched on Wednesday talked about 2016, according to him, was the last year that a conservative could be elected. But well, here we are. We didn't, approaching. Have a, we didn't really have a conservative elected. Or maybe a Republican. I don't know what they said specifically, but it was like leading towards I, I, the, the I mean, further we get in the future, yeah. the less chance we have. If that's true, what would our strategy be if we're talking strategy? To see the change that we want to see, to see socialism not become a reality. I I don't think it's in the elections, personally. I mean, when I consider President Trump, he's not a conservative, and that's really been his salvation, because when he's attacked by the other side, he doesn't have to defend morality or anything. He's 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 a he's a scamp from New York. He's not. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's just like them in a sense. He was one of them. He was one of them, and we're fortunate that he has chosen to be a representative of the people. And maybe it's because of it's his old age, and he's finally doing something for the country. I, I really think there's something genuine in that. But it's not a solution. Uh, when when he's gone, even if he wins the next one, which he seems likely to, but who knows? He's not changing the bar. He's not changing the the, the, the way government operates, right. the way the president operates. It would be wonderful if in his second term he dismantled the presidency a little, did something purposeful like that, so that the next one who comes along can't be as lawless as all of our presidents have been. But I agree, that's not likely to happen. I just had a phone call this morning from, um, I sell houses for a living, from a couple that um, they live in a condo, and they want to sell and rent. And I'm like, guys, you just bought your condo like three years ago. Why? <laughs> They're terrified about what's coming with the next election. Oh. They're terrified of the idea of socialism. She, you know, and just voicing that to me, I do have to believe that even a generation that's called themselves Democrat, they even have to see the idea of socialism as terrifying because they understand history. They've watched the wars. They know history from a different perspective than even my generation. And I just have to believe that when this whole group of Democrats is echoing the same narrative of socialism, I pray that that alone will marginalize them to a point that so many who would never have voted conservative or Republican will reconsider just simply as not to promote socialism. And that's, I think, what our prayer has to be. Well, yeah, it's a good prayer. But on the other hand, if we ever defeated these socialists, I don't trust the Republican Party yeah. To be better, I, I would. I think it would just give them license to be what they really are. It's just another power-hungry group of people. And you know, again, that's why I advocate the Convention of States. Is we have to change something constitutionally to reduce the power of the federal government. Maybe that's a. Um, maybe it's taking their money away. Maybe it is a balanced budget amendment. Because if you don't have unlimited funds to spend, you can't do what they're tempted to do. Well, Man, that's a hard thing. It's well, and we sign contracts that obligate our behavior right. because we're pulling that money that's ours in the first place. 
back through these grants. Grants are the most dangerous, and just someone who's adept at all of it, the grants are the most dangerous tool that the federal government has because they take our money and then they give it back to us and reallocate it in the form of a grant. But when you read the language of the grant, it's a contract that dictates our behavior and their expectation of us. And so your local elected officials, to your point, Matt, they're taking all this money, but it's not free money. We're giving away our rights. We're giving away the expectations that we should have to be free for dirty money that's coming from the federal money, from the federal government in form of grants. So I agree. I mean, the whole idea of secession, like I said earlier, is that that far off? Is that the COS piece that we're looking at? Mm-hmm. I don't know because I don't want to be governed by Nancy Pelosi, you know, for Maxine Waters, you know, from Barbara Boxer. I don't want to be governed it, by people it, like it that from California. It would be wonderful if all of these players would just allow the system to work as it's supposed to. Because the way the system is supposed to work is every state gets to do what they want. Every state is sovereign. And so you can choose to live in a conservative state or you can choose to live in a liberal state. And you let the chips fall where it may and you learn from all of these 50 experiments around the country. Yeah. That would be ideal Unfortunately, the people in D.C. have such a desire for power and wealth that they can't allow that. And paradise is coming once again. The original plan is still his plan. And there's a reason the prisons are full. You know, man is terribly corrupt. And it doesn't matter what responsibility you're placed with. It doesn't matter how much money you're given to take care of uh, the country with it doesn't uh, none of that matters uh, corruption exists and uh, you can't legislate the human heart well yes you can, you can restrain it <laughs> yes you I can mean, legislate you, you, you can, can make create laws murder illegal right yes, yes and that does sort of restrain people but it doesn't change the murderer's heart there no has it doesn't to change be... their heart yeah, it just so restrains. We have this two-pronged approach. As Christians, we want to change people's hearts. We want Jesus to change their hearts. We want to win as many people to know the Lord as possible. But we also have to be involved in the public arena. Right. We need to and, elect good representatives. Well, I mean, Scripture says that, that a community thrives when it has a godly leader. And it doesn't thrive when it has an ungodly leader. We know those things. But... It's kind of like the federal government is a very special puzzle for us because it's not us. It's far away from us. It's kind of like King George all over again. And the only thing we can possibly do is kind of restrain the influence of that monster out there. You have the technology where you can have your uh, elected leaders federally. Uh, they can stay right here at home, right in Missouri. They don't have to go to Washington, yeah, D.C. Absolutely. And they, you, that is a way to hold them a little bit more accountable because when they're halfway across the country, they really have no fear of you, so to speak. So, I mean, it, it, there's no reason they can't use technology and stay right in Jeff City or wherever, and we can go beat the doors down if we need to. So that would be one way. Yeah. I'm getting the feeling we don't have a strategy. We, don't have the, we can't do the agenda thing that the left has done, that we're just... Well, I'm going to say this, though. It's not the American way. I mean, seriously, to have a strategy, I mean, 
our mind, my mind doesn't think like that. I mean, a lot of people's minds don't think like that, that we have to have a strategy to take something that's not ours to take, to completely un, um, undo, redo the Constitution of the United States. I mean, yes, you have to have an agenda to do that. You have to have a very specific plan, and they've been incredibly specific in how to carry out that function. So we're constantly playing defense to their offense. And so that's hard because defense looks different on paper than an offense does, right? Mm -hmm. But they're actually executing an offense with precision. And we know what it is. We've seen it drawn out. I mean, there's a communist manifesto that is not too terribly different than Alinsky's rules for radicals. We know what they're doing, and they're carrying it out with precision. The shadow government is the bureaucracy of the United States of America. And we're seeing that play out with the FBI and the corruption in the FBI and the fact that you know we can elect people, but until we unhinge, uproot the bureaucracy and the bureaucratic system that really runs the show... Our elected officials don't mean anything. Here's the deal. When you go to Jefferson City and you work on a piece of legislation and you work super hard to get it passed, it's a great bill. It's a law that's signed, put into effect. Do you know what happens? All the different agencies and organizations extrapolate the pieces that apply to them, manipulate what, what could have been good to fit their agenda and their narrative, and none of those people are elected. That's what happens. So until we can recognize what's really going on, there is a shadow government in our state governments and in our federal government. And until we unhinge and unseat the bureaucrats, there are over a thousand employees at our Department of Education just in Missouri. Why? Why? There's no need for that. Education is supposed to be local. But the fact is that's incredibly telling. So until we stop funding the bureaucrats, we're not going to see money come back and make meaningful changes. So to your point, mm-hmm. to line item a budget, you betcha. Get rid of those departments. Just eradicate them. That will start to bring power into our local municipalities, our state governments. We have reached to those people. That's where we make a difference. But who's going to do that? The bureaucrats are very, I mean, we see that. It's a very powerful thing, the bureaucracy. And just, again, just looking at the corruption in the FBI as it unfolds, it's telling us a story that I don't think we really want to hear completely, but it's the truth. And so that's just one small microcosm of what we're up against. But until we recognize the true enemy, that's the enemy. So I agree with what you're saying. Got to have the courage to do something about it. So our elected federal officials have to find the courage. And when Roy Blunt, and I'm going to say it, is in the process of building a $3 million gated estate during his last election, we have a problem on our hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a teacher from Stratford, Missouri. He's but done well for himself. He's done very well as a politician. <laughs> so when as a teacher from Stratford, Missouri, evolves to a place of building a $3 million mansion during his election in Washington, D.C., to Matt's point, they need to come home. Mm-hmm. They need to have to face the people. And they're very safe in their ivory castles in Washington, D.C., but they need to come home now and deal with us on a local level. Can a state mandate that? Can a, could a state say, pass a law saying that our representatives in, don't go to Washington, that they work from home? But so then to if speak. you do that, do you don't have any representation from your state? It's only the liberals. No, it's not that you don't have represent, representation. They, they just, just work remote. from Jeff City. Gotcha. 
Could we? Could we mandate that? I don't that? think there's anything I have seen that requires them to go to Washington D.C. I mean, I don't. I don't. I've not read anything in the Constitution that requires that. Uh-huh. I just love your point. Technology is our enemy, but it can be our friend. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> I, I mean, they had to go back there in the so, days of George Washington because there was no technology. Yeah. They couldn't they vote by the internet. They can Skype a meeting or Imagine whatever. Imagine how much money that would save. Yeah, and you could all you, you could almost do public school that way too, and have the parents be involved in the school. I mean, right? It's so, headed that way. It is headed that but way. You can start down that road of saving money, though. Dangerous, dangerous road. Yeah. But you know what? It all starts with conversations like these to plant a seed of thought, to have a dialogue, a conversation, for that to take hold in one heart or one mind and then move exponentially, mm-hmm. that's why this is important. Okay. And I'd say... All right. And let us know. Like I would say to our listeners out there, let us know. If you want to get involved, message us, talk to us, and, you know, what do you want to do? And Let's see what be our we can own do. movement. <laughs> okay. Start right here, right. right now. Once again, we welcome listener comments about our topic and suggestions for future episodes. Email us at haven928 at gmail.com. That's H-A-V as in Victor, E-N-928 at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, go out and do good.